This is C-SPAN's The Weekly for March 2nd, 2016. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. What his younger brothers later did with the introduction of Oxycontin is they took a very old substance, which is called Oxycodone, which really had been around since the 20s, and they, they, they took a, a really strong formulation of the drug, which had previously only been used in cancer care. It had been used for, for terminally ill patients who were really in extreme pain and for whom it didn't matter if they became addicted because they weren't going to be around much longer. Our guest this week is Christopher Glazik of Esquire magazine. His piece is titled The Secret of Family Making Billions from the Opioid Crisis. It focuses on the Sackler family. Forbes magazine puts the family's wealth at around $14 billion, most of it coming from Purdue Pharma. It makes Oxycontin, and our discussion focuses on the Sackler family and their ties to the drug industry, including the opioid crisis in America. Christopher Glazig, based on your reporting, your extensive reporting for Esquire magazine, what can you tell us about the Sackler family and their involvement in the creation of the drug, the opioid drug? Well, so so the Sacklers are the 100% owners of Purdue Pharma, which is the manufacturer of Oxycontin. Um, The family has its roots in the early 20th century in Brooklyn. Uh, There are three brothers who were born in the 19-teens. The eldest brother, Arthur Sackler, really played a crucial role in pioneering the field of pharmaceutical advertising, actually. And uh, the, the family's first big infusion of cash really came in the 60s when Arthur Sackler devised the marketing strategy for Valium. So uh, Arthur actually made Valium, another addictive drug, uh, the, the, the biggest, the, the most widely prescribed drug in America, the first to reach $100 million in sales. And what he did with Valium is quite interesting. Um, there had been already another drug on the market called Librium, which was virtually indistinguishable from Valium. Arthur had the insight that he could take these two drugs but position them in the market in different ways and uh, give them, brand them for different purposes. So whereas Librium had been marketed to doctors as uh, a, a treatment kind of for what was narrowly thought of as anxiety, Arthur took Valium and he, um, he hugely expanded the range of indications for which it could be applied. So if you had a headache... It could be caused of something that are called psychic tension. If you had indigestion, if you had sleep problems, if you had sexual problems. And so this, was, this is how he was able to vastly expand the universe of patients who was getting this substance, which was a benzodiazepine, which had been around for a long time. It's important because uh, what his younger brothers later did with the introduction of Oxycontin is they took a very old substance, which is called Oxycodone, which really had been around since the 20s. Um, and... They, they, they took a, a really strong formulation of the drug, which had previously only been used in cancer care. It had been used for, for terminally ill patients who were really in extreme pain and for whom it didn't matter if they became addicted because they weren't going to be around much longer. So uh, they took a kind of a, a time-release formulation of a, of a strong, long-acting opioid, which they had initially made for, for the cancer market. And then they decided, hey, what if we market this to not just cancer patients, but to all kinds of patients suffering from pains, both major and minor, people suffering from menstrual pain, people suffering from back pain, people suffering from various neuropathic pains. Um, And that was how they really built this huge kind of permanent class of people in the United States that is on round-the-clock opioid care. Why is it so addictive? 
Well, so, you know, opioids are all basically the same. So when we think about heroin or we think about morphine or we think about oxycodone or hydrocodone, there's kind of several variations. But these have been around for centuries and centuries, um, and they are uh, you know, pleasure-giving drugs. They're addictive because if you uh, abruptly stop taking them, your body becomes very sick. So your body becomes habituated to them. And the other thing that's increasingly getting more and more attention, these are excellent painkillers. They really work quite well uh, in the short term, but they reduce the body's threshold for pain. So over time, they become less and less effective, and you have to take more and more just to achieve the same effect. So the CDC actually in the last couple of years have raised questions about whether these powerful opioids are actually really effective at all for long-term pain. I want to come back to that point, and also, as you uh, write in Esquire magazine, on average, 150 Americans die each day from this epidemic. But in trying to learn more about Purdue Pharma, based in Stamford, Connecticut, if you didn't know it was there, you wouldn't know it was there. Explain. <laughs> right. So uh, the Sacklers have been very good at keeping their name off their companies, and then you know, even at the level of the company, uh, there's not a huge sign that alerts you to the presence of Purdue Pharma if you're driving along the highway uh, in Stanford, Connecticut. Um, so, you know, it's a really fateful decision they made because you know, the Sacklers have gotten kind of remarkably little attention. They're among the very wealthiest families in the United States, wealthier than the Rockefellers, the Mellons, many other more prominent families. And they've managed to fly under the radar in part because they have, in public anyway, kept a real distance between their name and the company name. So you compare that to something like the Koch brothers, for instance. The Koch brothers have gotten tons of attention for their involvement in politics. Uh, and their, their company is named Koch Industries. It's named after them. It's kind of hard to miss. Um, you know, the Sacklers, and, and this is actually a pattern that, that started you know, way back in the 50s with other companies the families have founded, always kept their name off of their business dealings. Now, there's an irony to that because the Sackler name is actually everywhere, and you know, many listeners may recognize it from the Metropolitan Museum of Art or Museum of Harvard University or at the Louvre or at Oxford or at the Tate. Uh, it, so they're among the, the, the very biggest donors to the arts and to higher education, and they're actually uh, kind of notorious in museum circles for insisting that their name be featured very prominently on the, the kind of buildings and structures they endow. So... Uh, the Sackler name is, in, in one sense, is ubiquitous, but when it comes to the source of their fortune, it's very difficult to trace. Can you provide some insights, Christopher Glazik, on how the company has marketed these drugs and how they've encouraged its use among its patients, researchers, medical professionals, and other doctors? Yeah, so this is a really important point, and this is one of the family's uh, really kind of key business insights. Um, you, you know, the, the customer, when it comes to the pharmaceutical industry, is really not patients. The customer is the doctor. Um, and, and, you know, Purdue's marketing overwhelmingly has been focused on doctors and not on patients. And I think that, you know, for, for ordinary people, it might be kind of difficult to understand that the, the doctors are themselves very susceptible to marketing. <laughs> and doctors themselves are also not necessarily uh, – they're not necessarily super knowledgeable about the precise workings of different medications, particularly if it's a new medication. And so one of, one of the really crucial things that the company did in the run-up to, in the run-up to launching Oxycontin, uh, you know, before they'd had this other drug called MS-Cotton, which I mentioned was a cancer drug. Uh, 
for MS cotton, they marketed that to cancer specialists, very highly educated physicians. Um, and they had a certain kind of sales force that they used in order to market the drug. Those physicians tend to be older, more educated. When OxyContin came along and they decided they were going to market this drug to all kinds of doctors, to general practitioners, to OBGYNs, to dentists even, they had a specific program for targeting uh, resident assistants also um, you know, on the theory that you know, residents will one day become doctors and actually become quite influential. So, uh, and, and they employed also a pretty different kind of sales force in order to reach these people. The sales reps started getting younger, more attractive, more female, um, and they kind of employed this, this suite of tactics, which you know, now is, is quite familiar for a lot of people, but they were really you know, pioneers at some of this. They would invite doctors on all paid, uh, you know, all expenses paid vacations to Pebble Beach. They would, uh, they created these, these things called speakers bureaus, whereby a doctor could basically uh, join Purdue Pharma's payroll in exchange for giving a little talk at a dinner and maybe getting 500 or 1,000 bucks. So, you know, they had all these different ways to kind of juice every part of the supply chain. It wasn't just doctors. They also had inducements for pharmacists. They had, um, you know, they also gave coupons to patients. So, you know, it, it, they were very focused in making sure that every part of the chain from their manufacturing plant to patient's mouth had incentives to make sure that this pipeline of drugs kept flowing. In researching your essay, which we should point out is 30 pages in length, the title, The Secret of Family Making Billions from the Opioid Crisis, any discussion or talk about taking it off the market completely, or is that too draconian? Well, so, so, so Purdue actually just recently announced in the last couple of weeks they're going to stop marketing opioid products in the United States. So, uh, you know, in terms of whether regulators would have the power to take the drugs off the market, that is something that actually has come up a couple of different times, uh, you know, over, over the last uh, 20 or 30 years. Um, it doesn't seem like something that current uh, regulators would be very interested in doing. And, you know, the, part of the issue is that there are communities of people that really benefit from strong opioids. Um, you know, the question is, how do you make sure that people who need the opioid continue to get them? And how do you, but how do you make sure that the people who really don't need them don't start on them? And then, and then aside from that, we also have this huge population of addicts, most of whom are treated with some kind of opioid medication to essentially keep them on a kind of a maintenance dose that doesn't make them high, but also doesn't cause them to go through withdrawal. So those patients need steady access to kind of uh, medication-assisted treatments also. So you have this kind of you know, devilish problem whereby the things you might want to do to prevent new addicts from forming are not the same things you, might, that you would want to do in order to service the existing population of addicts. And I want to share with our audience part of what you wrote in your piece at Esquire magazine. It wasn't just that doctors were writing huge numbers of prescriptions. It was also that the prescriptions were often for extraordinarily high doses. Can you elaborate? That's right. So there's a couple interesting features there. Um, so one of the selling points of OxyContin, really its entire selling point, was that it was time-released, you know, that, that you could take one pill every 12 hours, allegedly, and that that would enable you to sleep through the night. And that was a really big deal because if you're, you know, if you're in kind of excruciating pain and you have to take something that uh, every four hours, that means you're not going to get a good night's sleep. So they were really, really adamant that 
uh, you know, that, that their main competitive advantage in the marketplace. Because remember, there are all kinds of other opioids already out there. And Oxycontin was essentially kind of a me too thing, was that theirs lasted longer. Um, what's kind of come out, though, is that actually the drug does not last as long as the company claimed for many, many, many patients. Some patients, it wears off after six hours, after eight hours, and really like large, large numbers of patients. And for those patients uh, who, who end up crashing before the recommended dose um, time period is over, uh, what, what the company instructed doctors to do was not to increase dosing frequency because that would undermine the whole, uh, you know, the whole concept behind why this drug was, was valuable, but rather just to steadily increase the dose. And, you know, I'm one lawyer in a court case made the analogy that it's like if a plane is about to crash, they just want to fill it up with more fuel so that the descent takes longer rather than um, kind of steadily refueling it every, you know, uh, more frequently while it's in the air. I want to come back to the family in just a moment, but what type of lawsuits has Purdue Pharma faced over the years with regard to all of this, either from individuals or from states or other companies, perhaps? I mean, it, it, you know, it might be one of the most litigated against companies uh, out there. They've, they've had dozens and dozens of lawsuits from individuals, class actions, various government entities. I mean, there was a very big lawsuit from the federal government in 2007, which actually found the company guilty of criminal charges. and actually forced its three top, top executives to resign and also to plead guilty to criminal charges, which is extremely unusual in, in the pharmaceutical world, or really anywhere in the business world. Um, so... It, it, it's kind of repeatedly had this litigation uh, storm brewing around it. Importantly, though, the family has only very rarely been named in, in any of these, these suits. And you know, what, what, the, what they would do in kind of the late 90s and early 2000s, if the family did, if family members did end up getting named in a suit, they would settle those suits very quickly in order to prevent anyone from having to take a deposition under oath. Um, what is starting to happen now as, as there's more attention being focused on the opioid epidemic around the country, you have this kind of bandwagon effect where cities, states, counties are all suing the company, and they're typically suing not just Purdue, but some other opioid manufacturers also. But we just had, very interestingly, the first instance in recent years of a government entity also suing family members. So that was actually a, a, a county in New Jersey, Camden County, is named Richard Sackler, who was the president, president of Purdue during uh, the, the promotion of OxyContin. He's been named in one of the suits. So that's, that's potentially a very interesting development because that hasn't happened in quite a long time. Well, let me pick up on that point and ask you first, and this is a two-part question, Raymond and Mortimer Sackler, who they were, their involvement in the company, their idea in creating the company, and the descendants of the Sackler family, where are they today? Right. So, so there's three brothers, and it's a little complicated, but the patriarch of the family uh, was really Arthur Sackler, who was kind of by far the, the best known in his day. He's the one who uh, kind of really pioneered the field of pharmaceutical advertising. He was the first person to put a, a, a color ad in the journal of the American Medical Association. And he had kind of all these intuitions about how print advertising could be used to influence doctors. So uh, you know, by all accounts, the, the purchase of Purdue, which was kind of this uh, kind of teetering shell of a company in the 1950s um, that was kind of on, on the brink of bankruptcy, 
Arthur kind of had the idea to buy this company and he gave it to his younger brothers to run. Part of the reason he did that is that he had all these other kind of companies. In, uh, you know, he, he, had, he had a big pharmaceutical advertising company, which might have posed a conflict of interest if he had then also been a pharmaceutical manufacturer himself. And Arthur was kind of the king of conflicts of interest. And he had all these kind of different operations that were kind of secretly linked. And if, you know, if the counterparties knew, then, then they might have raised you know, alarms. But um, what he did with Purdue is he, he gave it to his two younger brothers to run. His younger brothers, uh, you know, kind of followed in his footsteps throughout his life. He you know, paid for them to go to medical school. He gave them various jobs at research institutions. And then he eventually kind of uh, found this company for them, for them to run. Mortimer, um, who was uh, the middle brother, eventually moved to Europe and ran the, the, the company's extensive European operations. And uh, Raymond ended up running, who was the youngest brother, ended up running the American operations out of Connecticut. Your essay says that the Sacklers will likely re- emerge untouched. Why? So the, the issue has to do with whether or not there's a legal case to kind of claw back any of the family's you know, $14 billion fortune. And different lawyers I've talked to have kind of suggested different things. You know, most of these suits, whether it's coming from the government or class action, you know, they're looking for deep pockets, um, but they're suing these huge pharmaceutical companies, which, which are pretty deep pocketed themselves. The case for naming a family member, you know, so, I mean, so there is a scenario, uh, actually a not terribly unlikely scenario, where, where Purdue could itself go bankrupt. Um, you know, it, it had the kind of game theory of the litigation is such that when you have hundreds of counties and cities all around the country suing you, even if you think you're going to win every suit, just kind of sending them off individually is kind of cost prohibitive. So Purdue could go bankrupt. In that case, would people then kind of start uh, to, to, to come for, for the family's fortune? It's possible, particularly if it's found that uh, the company, the, the family was kind of extracting huge amounts of money from the company while it was under investigation. That, that, that could be a fraudulent transfer. But most people I talked to thought that this was pretty unlikely, that you know, kind of adding the family members just kind of adds this extra layer of complexity to the litigation and might not actually strengthen uh, the case of the litigants. So most people think that this, this seems like an unlikely thing. But, you know, we, we just saw a couple of weeks ago the first county uh, did actually name family members in the suit. So, so this could be the start of a new trend. And with regard to the company, does it have a board of directors? Is it a private company? How does it operate? Oh, oh, yeah. So, so I mean, the board of directors is almost entirely members of the Sackler family. So it, it's, it's totally private and 100 percent owned by the Sacklers. You point out in your piece in Esquire magazine that uh, Raymond, the last remaining original Sackler brothers, died last year. He was 97 years old. So what about the descendants today? How involved are they in the company? Well, so Raymond's uh, son, Richard, eldest son, was, was incredibly involved and really was, you know, by all accounts, kind of the main force behind Oxycontin. He, he led the company during the, the development and uh, promotion of Oxycontin. Uh, then his son, David Sackler, uh, his third generation is a director at Purdue. I believe you know, he's, he's the only third generation heir who's a director at Purdue. But, but uh, several of his children have had you know, differing levels of involvement over the years. Um, you know, after the federal government started investigating the company um, in kind of 2003-2004, uh, family members basically stopped being executives at the company. They kind of, kind of got out of it. 
but they still control the board. And, you know, what's kind of really important in a forward-looking way, we've had this terrible tragedy unfold in the United States. Maybe we're getting a handle on it now. Maybe not. Maybe it's just getting started. But, uh, you know, foreign markets, other countries have not yet had the kind of prescription drug problems that we've had. Um, and there's a lot of signs that Purdue really views foreign markets as its biggest growth, growth opportunity at this point. And, you know, they, they seem to be kind of reprising all their greatest hits from the 90s from the United States. And they're going into Brazil and to Colombia and to China. And they're kind of, you know, uh, circulating these kind of misleading studies, which suggest that these drugs are not addictive and that, uh, you know, huge quantities of the population have this, uh, suffer from a kind of silent epidemic of undertreated pain. So there's a lot of concern that they could kind of start profitably causing the same kind of problems in other countries that they originally caused here. One of my takeaways in reading your piece is a family that has been very philanthropic, receiving countless honors and awards, and yet at what price? Well, you know, I, 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 the family has done a lot of good through its donations. Um, it's also worth pointing out that they have you know, donated you know, pretty consistently to institutions that are already the very richest institutions in the world. So, I mean, they've had this kind of very deliberate strategy of you know, kind of braiding the family name through the most elite, most patrician kinds of kinds of uh, places. You know, Ivy League schools, major international museums. Um, you know, it's very different than, than a philanthropic approach to someone like you know Bill Gates, who started his own foundation, and you know, it's mostly dedicated to you know solving you know uh, like uh, malaria or you know African diseases. They, they've really uh, maintain a policy of kind of directing their money at the most prestigious elite causes, you know, which isn't to say there's anything wrong with that, but I think it's kind of worth uh, pointing that out. Um, you know, some of these, you know, the, the, the Sackler grandchildren, some of them are filmmakers, some of them are philanthropists, um, you know, there's a movie producer, there's, you know, so exactly what kind of responsibility they bear for the opioid epidemic, I think is a, is a tricky question. It's not obvious they really bear any responsibility. Um, what has been very striking, though, and very unusual is the family's kind of unified position of silence over so many years. And uh, those family members that are still invested in Purdue, which is about two-thirds of the family, so basically, you know, it's kind of complicated, but Arthur's descendants were bought out when Arthur died, so they have nothing to do with Purdue. But the other two-thirds of the family have really maintained this kind of, uh, you know, stone-cold posture of never comment, absolute silence. And, you know, you kind of wonder if that's really going to be tenable going forward. But so it's worth pointing out that, um, that in the wake of the publication of my piece and of other pieces, other investigations, uh, uh, the, the Arthur's descendants who are not invested in Purdue have started becoming much more public in their denunciation of their cousins. And this is a pretty interesting uh, development because it's kind of the first time there's been a real public break between different branches of the family. Which is my final question, because you indicated in your piece that the family did not comment on any of your questions. How did you go about researching this essay, and how long did it take? Now, it took quite a while. Um, you know, a lot of it was reaching out to uh, ex-employees, people who had worked with the Sacklers at Purdue over the years, and that was kind of a lot of painstaking, you know, searching through LinkedIn. Um, you know, I, I reached out to the Sacklers through various intermediaries, with some friends in common, and uh, they, they were not interested in answering any questions. 
Although I should note that that uh, Arthur's descendants, the, the ones who are not involved with Purdue, were willing to answer some questions. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think that trying to figure out who they'd worked with over the years. I also talked to a lot of people who had who had uh, been recipients of their donations, you know, and who, who typically had very very positive things to say about the Sacklers. What is your question moving ahead on this topic? Well, I think my question moving ahead. Uh, I, I'm, I'm curious to see if the Sacklers are going to be able to kind of maintain their policy of silence. There's been a lot of calls now, and you know, including from, from the photographer Nan Golden, and I don't know if you're familiar with this, but uh, Nan Golden, who's a, is a, a famous photographer, is kind of leading this kind of crusade against the Sacklers in the art world. Of course, the art world is, is you know, one of the arenas in which they operate uh, most publicly. And, you know, it's basically calling on the Sacklers to donate some of their vast, vast fortune to addiction research or to rehab centers or you know, sometimes cause to help ameliorate some of the problem. Uh, as far as I know, nothing of that kind has happened yet. Uh, you know, the Sacklers have donated millions and millions and millions, if not billions of dollars to various causes, but uh, they have never, uh, as far as is known, donated any money to, to addiction research. But, uh, you know, I'm curious to see whether that might shift. And I think, I think there's you know, some possibility that uh, they might see the writing on the wall and see if they kind of have to do something. Joining us from New York City, Christopher Glazik, his piece available at Esquire.com, The Secretive Family Making Billions from the Opioid Crisis. Thank you for your time. Thank you. You've been listening to C-SPAN's The Weekly. Be sure to follow C-SPAN Radio on Twitter to learn about upcoming episodes. And by the way, every C-SPAN podcast is available on the free C-SPAN Radio app, as well as Google Play Music, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. If you like the program, please rate and review us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you for listening.